Hey friend, it's Hillary here. I'm hoping that you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. Abby Medcalf is a relationship guru. And really for me, even more than that is she is someone who I regard highly as a mentor. She's someone who you can just tell really wants to gift you every single lesson that she's learned without any judgment of where you are and how you've arrived at needing to learn the lesson. My hope is that you feel joy and growth from this podcast, which are Abby's definitions of success, and that you're able to see that being right may be a way that's actually limiting you from being effective. I know that's certainly something that I continue to work through is letting go of the need to be right so that I can be an effective person, whether it's in my relationship with my husband, with my BFF, Kami, with my coworkers, or even my kids. I want to be effective. And Abby is going to share some of the tools today with us for us to be effective. And sometimes that means forgiving ourselves for the things that we've done that we're really ashamed about. We all have those things and they just vary on the scale of shocking to less shocking. But all of these things really help us to become more effective and happier, full of joy and always in pursuit of growth. I hope you enjoy this. Welcome back to another episode of The Grateful Leader. I'm so excited to have the one and only Dr. Abby Medcalf on today, which is super fun. And as you all know, Kami McGrew, also the one and only, is here. Also the one and only. Thank you so much for joining us, Abby. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Happy to Happy to come. Yes. So the way I have gotten to know you is one of my mentors, Steph Tuss recommended you when I reached out and said, I have grown my business to this, this thing that I'm really proud of. I really want to grow my marriage to something that is unlike, like my goal in life is to be different than everybody else. So I want to have a different marriage than everybody else. I don't want to settle. She said, you got to reach out to Abby. She is um, the one and only, and that has been really proven to be really true. I have loved your book and recommended it to so many people. For those who are watching, it's right there in the corner um, <laughs> called Be Happily Married, Even If Your Spouse oh, yeah. Won't Do a Thing. Is that correct? Even if your partner won't do a partner thing. Partner won't do a thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then your podcast has been, you just recorded, I think, 200 and some odd yeah, podcasts. Yeah, I'm on yes. 204, I think now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You so overachiever, I know, it's Go you. And we were actually uh, number 78 this week in the United States. And that always changes, you know, like every day. But um, for someone like me who doesn't have any famous people on, who doesn't really even interview anyone, it's just me. Uh, it's uh, kind of cool. We're in 171 countries. And uh, yeah, just trying to really create world peace, helping people be happier in their relationships. So and have really good evidence-based, you know, information as opposed to half the crap that's out there running around, which makes me crazy, um, you know, by people who are not necessarily qualified to, <laughs> to give the information, but um, yeah, so it's really exciting. Yeah. Thank you. I love, I'm really proud of the podcast and the book. Yes. As you should be the, one of the focuses of the grateful leaders, we love to talk people can, we show up and we can put on our our shiny, pretty face. And we look like we just have all of our shit together. And there's a whole lot of, I mean, some of it's 
we are taught fake it till you make it and all these other things, but there are lots of dark parts to us that we have to give meaning to, I think, or perhaps we don't, you're the, you're the PhD in the room. Um, what are, what are some ways and some surprising things that our listeners may find shocking to hear about the Ted talk, best selling author, <laughs> podcast person, relationship guru, um, in front of us? Uh, well, that's so funny. Um, you know, I think any of us who become, who get into the counseling field in whatever way that is, it's always because we're screwed up. Like that's why there's a lot, I say with so much love in my heart, but there's a lot of really bad therapists out there because all of, nobody goes into, you know, psychology or therapy who had a perfect background. It just, it's not attractive. It's not something you would do. So I think everyone should always know that, you know, when you're uh, talking to anyone, there, there's some, there's something that, pain that they've gone through something, whatever that is for them. And so for me, um, you know, I just come from a family with a lot of addiction on both sides and my parents were not, they were, you know, married for 53 years and, you know, I had all that, but there was, um, a lot of addiction in my family, my siblings and me. Um, and so, yeah, I started doing heroin very young and was hiding that really well for many years. I, I think, um, People usually think of like heroin addicts as, or opiate addicts as, you know, nodding and, you know, strung out on the street with a needle hanging out of their arm. But a lot of us were, I went to an Ivy League school. We were super productive. So I was very, very productive on drugs. And so, and actually when I stopped using is when I really crashed and burned and really had a hard time. Um, but yeah, you know, I didn't, I think, and even through that process, you know, when you get clean. I went to a bunch of rehabs, you know, I did all the things and I used 12 step meetings and all that. Um, so a lot of failure, there's a lot of, um, not giving up on yourself and really learning that kind of resilience. Like, what do I have to do? And I tried everything I, I did. I walked on hot coals with Anthony Robbins, like way back in the day when there was 300 people in the room. I mean, I was like, I was an early adopter <laughs> and I did S with Warner Earhart and Life Spring. And I mean, you name it, I tried it. And I moved to Israel. I, I moved across the world. I I've I there's nothing I haven't tried to find myself, you know, because getting drugs and alcohol are a symptom of a problem. They're not the problem, you know. So that's why people give them up and are still miserable because you have to do the inner work and figure out why that was in the first place that you were using and what you have left. And so that has been my journey. I think since I was 12, uh, that has been my journey all these years. And I'm always on the journey. I'm always finding out things, new things, you know, as our kids get older, as the, as your marriage or relationship changes, you know, you start, you keep finding out about yourself. You just keep finding out about yourself. You, you keep discovering new things and having to pivot, you know, you're never done. And I think that's been, I don't know if that's surprising for folks, but I, I think that's something everyone should hear. You're, you're not done. You don't like get there and go, oh, I'm all done. There, There's kind of always that next piece. And for me, success is not the money I make or anything, or even the podcast or all those things. It's success for me is joy and growth. If those two things are in my life, I feel successful together. If they're not, I don't feel successful. And so that's always what I'm looking for. How can I find joy 
and how can I be growing? And because I know that those two are connected. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I love it. So much good there. How does a 12 year old find themselves doing heroin? I mean, Kami and I grew uh, up in rural Kansas, me really yeah, rural Kansas. So like, I don't think that there was heroin around for us to, there was, my town was actually, it's called Mount Hope is where I'm from in Kansas. And it's lovingly referred to as Mount Dope Oh, because it is between, it's between two um, larger cities in, in Kansas directly in between so it was the meeting grounds of of a lot of drug deals and then also children exchanges oh, <laughs> from divorced parents right, right. you would always see them there on a Sunday evening which one not the same, not the same. um but like Hillary I uh I I was not around I wasn't privy to anything going on as a child so I'm also very interested in how a 12 year old um, would even come in contact well, I had older siblings, first of all, much older. Um, I'm the youngest by seven years of my of the youngest of my siblings. And so, you know, they were doing all kinds of stuff. I started experimenting with drugs when I was nine. I mean, there's a, um, you know, and I was very precocious. And, you know, there's so many reasons, I think, you know, there's never one. Um, but they were around, you know, I had teenage siblings and they were all doing stuff. So, uh you know, and I just found a love of it very quickly. And when there's a genetic predisposition, that's sort of what happens, like a, a switch gets turned on and it's, you can't turn it off. And so it was always sort of looking for the next thing, looking for the next thing. And uh, yeah. And so heroin was just one of those things I tried because I tried everything and I, I loved it. And um I did, I like speedballs, which is heroin and cocaine together. You know, those were very big back then. I remember Jim Belushi dying when I was doing drugs and I was like, oh, not me. Uh, and so I, I don't, it wasn't, it didn't feel that, I don't know, you know, it's, it's what I did. It's what I knew. And um, I hit it super well. People didn't know. I was very, again, very precocious, very smart. And um, it was just a different time. I don't know. It was a very different time. It was like, my kids could never get away with that like ever, because I'm all over them. But it wasn't in those days, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my late fifties, you know, it, in those days in New York, uh, in the city, it, it, it just, it was very, there was a lot of doing things on your own. I worked up in the Catskills when I was like 13, you know, I worked in restaurants when I was really young, chopping vegetables and stuff in the back. You know, my dad was a chef. I don't know. Like it wasn't, it was a very, it was a real cowboy time. Era. I think. Mm -hmm. It was a different era. And yeah. so there wasn't as much supervision. You know, we were told to leave the house and we don't want to see you again till six o'clock. <laughs> so you were like ordered out and you couldn't come back until, you know, can you can imagine, imagine that today? with your kids now? Yeah. I know. Now I'm like, make... where are you? What's going on? I want oh, your cell phone. Yeah. Your locations aren't on, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's so crazy, but that's how it was back then. I used to run around a Shea stadium and with like 25 cents and like people would give me free stuff and I'd go back. I mean, just the danger, you know, it's crazy. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah. But it's, it's crazy to think of now, but then it wasn't, everybody was doing it. After, it was, after you became what, what we would call a recovered addict, when did you start 
did you have any negative emotion attached to the fact that from the time you were nine, cause now I see you and it's like, you have, you have no judgment of any of that. You're just like, no, this is what it was. Yeah. Um, I have, I still struggle with, and you and I've worked through some of this in my therapy with you wondering whether I was responsible for the, the things that have happened in life and then really trying to pull some of that apart. And my, my issues are not the same as yours and nobody's really are. Cause we all come from these different balls of yarn, but did you have any oomph to overcome and what, what yeah. did that look like for you? Oh my God. Yeah. All the time. I mean, the shame, the things I did when I was using the the shame was very deep, like super deep. And it still comes up every night. You know, you're never again done. So things will happen and it'll, it'll kind of be there. Um, I call it the in trouble feeling. Yeah. So sometimes something will happen and you know, maybe Gary says to me, hey, we need to talk later. And I, I mean, I am like, like he, he knows not to do that actually. <laughs> but it's like my, I have such a visceral reaction to it. And again, I always feel like, how did I screw up? What did I do wrong? It's all my fault, you know? And uh, that will happen in the blink of an eye. And then I've just done enough work where I can very quickly override that. But there's, you know, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I checked myself into a drug rehab once to sell drugs. I can't think of anything more heinous and horrible to do. Here's people trying to get well. And I was purposefully going in to make money and to sell them drugs. It's something like I couldn't even talk about for a long time because it's got so much just shame, shame yeah. attached to it. And it's who I, you know, it was, it was a symptom of my disease at the time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, addiction is a, a brain disease. We know that. And your brain gets, is hijacked and you're acting in ways you would never otherwise act. And so, you know, just getting through that. I had a lot, my, I had a very narcissistic mother and, you know, like true narcissism, you know, people throw that word a lot around now, but mine really was. And, um, getting through that and all the stuff I had with her and all of her issues with me, you know, that was probably the biggest thing to overcome. And I'm really grateful to say, you know, when she died, I was the one taking care of her and I, I had peace with her. We were good. We were really good. And, I noted, you know, my siblings didn't have that kind of peace and we have very different ways we talk about her. And I, I feel a lot of love and understanding for who she was. I don't, you know, not happy about what happened, but really trying to understand what she went through and that she was doing the best with the tools she had. She just had really bad tools. And so when I learned to forgive myself and learn to forgive her, that's when my world opened up. And that took a minute. Like that was not, I'm sort of saying it like a thing that was years in the doing of, you know, therapy and really working on forgiveness very specifically um, because of that shame we have ourselves about, even though we can say, well, someone else did this to me or uh, my brain was hijacked or whatever, we can say that, but we still are carrying all that shame, right? So to truly forgive ourselves and for what we've done and who, who we've been and who we, you know, and also to grieve who we could have been had that not happened, had those things not happened to truly get through that um, and come out on the other side is, is great. And it, it's, um, it's like peeling an onion, you know, there's a lot of layers to it and you just get, as you peel it, you get better and better and quicker and quicker at it. 
So it's just being brave enough to take off those first few layers, you know, and I, I was just desperate too. Cause again, even though I was clean, I didn't, I had horrible, you know, my relationships were, they weren't horrible. Actually, I was with very nice men, but I was terrified of commitment, like terrified. <laughs> I was very committed to them when I was with them. I was a serial monogamist. So I would like, but everybody had my best, my best friend used to joke. She's like, Oh, time's up. You know, like we, we did about 18 <laughs> months. And I, yeah. I was, it's usually when they wanted to get married. And I was out the door. I was like, oh, time to go. You know, I was out the door. And so, yeah, I never like, I never cheated or anything, but I never wanted to stay with anybody past a certain point. I felt trapped. I felt suffocated. I couldn't do it. And so, you know, I did that many times, like 18 months, you know, those really, it was about 18 months every time. It's so funny. And then I finally took a few years off and did some more therapy. You know, therapy has been my thing all my years, um, in and out of different kinds of therapy too. And, uh, was single for a while in my late twenties. And that's when I finally got ready to get married, you know, really like, Oh, I think I can, I think I could do this different. I think I could not be so afraid. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, it's just all, it's all the things, right. It's, it's just all the things. <laughs> it's all the layers. And again, I'm still, you know, my stuff comes up as control issues. I get very controlling and crazy and very impatient. That's usually my, canary in a coal mine that I'm not in a good place that my I've gotten off track so I, I just try to be very uh mindful you know I'm, I'm very self-aware but you know self-awareness and mindfulness are different right I can be self-aware that I'm a controlling person but not very mindful when I'm doing it you know and not realize sure. I'm doing it so it's really working on first that self-awareness of really understanding our what we do you know kind of how we're built and and not judging it, you know, I don't beat myself up. I get that it's a, it's a coping mechanism and that's okay. And that's what I felt I needed to make sense of my world and be in control and, you know, control something. And now I know enough that I know that that's sort of when I'm off track. And so when I'm feeling that, and I, again, try to be mindful, I can stop and think, what am I afraid of right now? You know, like what, 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 what's going on? Why am I, why am I afraid? What, what, what's happening? And it's usually something, you know, something's making me afraid. My, my oldest son is going off to college. I'm like, I'm finding myself very like, well, what are we doing? What's going on? What, you know, I start tasking, you know, getting on the list and writing things down. And I know, and of course everybody, I, people don't like when I control them. I don't know why. Cause I don't understand. <laughs> I feel like it's brilliant when I control, but you know, everyone sort yeah. of starts backing up. I'm sure you've had the same thing. Everyone's like, oh my God, stop. Uh, and resisting that. And, and again, that sometimes I just see it reflected and that's how I know I'm doing it. <laughs> but my kids are, I have a good relationship with them. So they're really good. They'll they're like, mom, do you need to, do you need to meditate? That's usually the, the kind of joke in my house. I'm like, oh, I'm the safe word. <laughs> yes. Safe word. Abby, so I, I have to... a, I have a question oh, too. Okay. You go first. So, okay. I'll go first. So as a recovering addict and also a mental health professional, I want to ask you on your thoughts of psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And do you think that they have any, you know, healing effect when in regards to trauma or PTSD? Yep. Um, so have you ever tried them? And, and can you share your thoughts on as a professional? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think it's such a great route for a lot of people. I haven't 
Um, but I've had lots of clients I've referred for that. Uh, and they've to a person, when you use someone reputable and don't just like go do it on your own, I, I think the problem right. is when people self-medicate, right? Like I don't have a big problem with pot necessarily, but when people say they're anxious and so they go get a pot card here in California, you know, and, and I, uh, anybody I see doing that lined up, there's actually a cannabis store not far from where I live. And whenever I see the line outside, I'm like, oof, you know, there it's a bunch of like 20 year old boys. And I'm thinking, really, are you all really anxious? You know, I don't, I just don't, I, I, if you tried everything else and nothing worked and the doctor said, Hey, go get a pot card, man. That's what you need. I would be down for it. I'm like, go. And the same thing with the psilocybin and other stuff. I just, a lot of people self-medicate and they're, they're deciding for themselves. Like your brain is a little off, right? So that's why you think you need this thing. So, but, so your judgment is off. And then you're deciding what's best, you know, it, I'd at least like you to try some other things first or to talk to a professional and say, is this a good, or again, to have a professional guide you through a psilocybin experience, because that's where you're going to yeah. get the best bang for your buck. So I've had quite a few clients do it and have excellent results, like excellent results. So I'm a, I, I don't know if I'm a huge fan, but I'm a big supporter of when it's the like anything, when it's the right thing for the right person, it's phenomenal. It really is. Um, yeah. I, I can't say enough good things. I would love to visit about when you started to forgive yourself and what that looked like, because I think, uh, so my background having been in foster care just for a little bit of time. And I know the shame that that brought my family wow. because the wheels fell off the wagon. And then for a long time, I never wanted to talk about it because I felt like it was so shocking to people. Right. Like, yes, I was a severe victim of child abuse and yeah, it was really bad. It was a lot easier for people, for us just to move on. Like it never happened. Okay. And for a lot of time, that's kind of what I did, but you have to, there is an element that shame bakes in this is a poison shame is a poison. And sometimes we shame ourselves and it can be about anything. It can be about our sexuality. It can be about the things we're curious about. It can be about things that we've actually done or thought about doing. Or I remember the first time I spanked my kid and I felt so full mm. of shame about it because here I was like with my own hand repeating the thing that I said I would never, ever do. And, you know, you go look at yourself in the mirror as a mother and you've got these crazy eyes of someone you don't even recognize and you just feel shame. Oh. And I remember as a really young mom, um, feeling shameful for being depressed that I had these humans because I had twins first who I had to take care of. And you feel bad for feeling that way because everybody tells you that this is the Not best time to. of your life yeah. and to savor it because it's going to be gone before you know it. And you're like, you don't understand. It's not going to go fast enough. Yep. How do you start to, I don't even know about forgiving shame, but how do you heal shame for you or from a, from a clinical perspective, but how do you heal? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And I've, I didn't have that experience with my kids, but I had it with my mom because people, Mother's Day would come. You have to love your mother. It has to be the best thing ever, you know? And I, same thing, I feel so much shame. Like, oh, I don't have this thing that everybody else has. And I actually don't like, you know, trying to pick out a card for her was yeah. 
horrible. So I'm just curious, what is your definition? What is the technical definition of narcissist? Because I mean, we do read about it in reference yeah. to Tom, Dick and Harry all over the place. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what is that? So, so I can have a more educated frame of reference so I can appreciate even more about being in the mother's day card right. aisle. I mean, like, <laughs> how do I define you? Yeah. Narcissism is in, you know, this big book we have called the DSM. It's, it's an actual clinical diagnosis. And what narcissism really is, is a personality disorder. You know, most people are most familiar with mood disorders, like, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, things like that. And personality disorders are really recalcitrant. They're really hard to treat. Um, so borderline and narcissism and dependent personality disorder, there's a few, there's not that many. Um, and narcissism has, you know, a, a kind of laundry list. I actually did a great episode on the podcast about narcissism, but, and I will say, so what happens is there's really, um, there's a constellation of things and there's a very brittle, there's a very brittle ego involved that again, and it's not the person's not consciously lying or anything. They are, it's how they're looking at the world. And so through this very brittle lens. And so uh, any kind of feedback, forget it. And there's a lot of like turning things around, you know, so getting a narcissist will say things to you like that you're too emotional, too sensitive. I was just joking, you know, that you're not like, getting it somehow. There's also always a feeling with narcissists, like you just know something's off, but you can't put your finger on it. You can't like say what it is. There's often covering for them or being embarrassed by them in public because of the things they say and do. And you're trying to like, you know, um, you know, apologizing to friends for how they act, you know, Oh, I'm sorry. My mom did that. You know, she didn't mean, you know, that kind of stuff or covering and trying to get around that kind of stuff. Um, so there's a lot, and I don't have all the things in my head, of but course, yeah. there's a lot of this sort of, um, uh, very, there's like a brittleness. I don't know how else to say that to their personality where they cannot accept feedback and cannot really engage with you on a feeling level. They, they're very uncomfortable with that, with the facts, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they will often twist the facts to sort of suit what they're how they need to see the world. I and feel so, this strange sensation you're describing me. I'm like, oh no. I think we all think that, you know, but there's a, uh, it often sometimes an inflate, like they'll take credit. Like, I bet you don't do this taking credit for other people's accomplishments. Um, literally hiding other people's accomplishments to make them their own. And so, okay. Whew. I'm in the yeah. chair. <laughs> no, a lot of that kind of no, stuff. No, so yeah. you're saying all of this stuff, Abby, and my brother, um, my middle brother, just finally has separated um, from a relationship that he has been in for the last probably four years that has just been this emotional roller coaster for oh. everybody. Um, it's like he just was addicted to this toxic relationship and you know, I can't diagnose her at all, but if I could, she would absolutely be diagnosed <laughs> as a narcissist. <laughs> um, a, so you're yeah. saying all these things and I'm like, oh yes, uh, I know. I, I feel that. She might've had like narcissistic tendencies too. That's how that, a lot of that stuff shows up. Do you know what I mean? Like 
There's a so lot what's of the difference between a true narcissist and just again, they have to fit all the criteria. You know, there's a lot of blaming other people for, you know, their own shortcomings. There's again, I'd have to like, I, I hate to speak out of turn about this. Kind she's of got, stuff. got them all. I'm yeah, just yeah. gonna say okay. she's okay. got them all. It's yep. <laughs> uh, again, I did a, a, and there's four types of narcissism. Like there's different types. Again, I, I, and maybe we'll, I'll send you the I'm going to put the show in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link to your, exactly. To that Lee, specific let's podcast link to episode. that specific episode. I did one on that and one on gaslighting, like what that really looks like and how to know if you're being gaslit. And so, yeah. And that that's, gets a lot of, um, yeah, they get, they get downloaded a lot. Um, cause I really wanted to explain to people. So you're not again, like over diagnosing people. Um, but my mom, you know, she was in competition with me all the time. So, you know, she would put me down in a lot of ways and, you know, say things, even in the end of, you know, I'd be down there visiting with Gary and she'd say, you know, if you gain weight, you're going to lose him. You know, what's going on? Like she would comment on my body a ton, um, and how I look, there was always this way, or <laughs> I remember coming out one night in a, this dress in this like beautiful green color. I look, it, it's really pretty with my coloring. And she said, oh, wow, that dress, that color looks great on me. <laughs> like it's such a, <laughs> um, that's awesome. I mean, I know, like, it's, it's also to laugh about, it almost sounds like an SNL skit, right? Like, right. It's <laughs> that shocking. Actually, that's kind of how you can tell narcissist. Like it's so over the top in a way, or, um, we had a waitress at our table. It was that night at dinner. We had a waitress come over and she said, um, doesn't that waitress look a lot like me, you know, like Abby to my husband, to Gary. And, and Gary was like, she was like 20, this waitress, you know, I'm, you know, 30 <laughs> years older, 40 years older. And she's, and he was like, uh, I get, and she said, well, the waitress is much prettier, but there's a, th you know, like she would, it was always this very subtle sort of things. And of course my wonderful Gary said, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Abby's the most beautiful woman in the room. And like, that was his immediate, that's why he's a keeper was his immediate reaction. And he didn't get sucked in. Cause he, he liked my, he loved my mom. Like he didn't have a thing with my mom, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I did, but of course for me, it was like, you know, there was some of this. Um, but even so with her, yeah, I was able to like, when she made the comment of the dress, when I came out, I was like, you do look great in this color. Yes, you do. Yes, we, you, you look great in this. <laughs> So your color, maybe we'll shop later for a dress for you. You know, it's, you get to a point where you're again, and my mom, you know, was, had, was a victim of incest and was raped and like had the most horrific childhood, you know? And so when you come to something and at least that didn't happen to me in that house, you know, like she had very poor boundaries with stuff sexually, as you might imagine, because of that, that's what happens. But you know, thank God that wasn't what happened to me. Like, so I try to remember that. I'm like, that's how I started to forgive, you know, yeah. it was to really be, and to forgive myself was the same thing. Like who that person was who walked into that rehab to sell drugs. That was the best I could do at the time with what I had. Now I know better. So now my resources are different and now I would never make that choice. But to, to have some, and that's what I started really going deep on was self-compassion. Yes. And I did this loving kindness meditation. I actually created one and it's up on YouTube. If anyone just Googles my name with loving kindness, you can, you can listen for free. Uh, I use the script because there's a lot of good research about loving kindness. I did that meditation for years and I still do. I still use it in my meditation practice because part of it is being loving 
lovingly kind to yourself in the meditation. It's like a visual visualization meditation. And you're being, you're practicing loving kindness with all these people. And it really changed the game for me. You know, Krista Neff, of course, is the queen of self-compassion. And she has a wonderful book for women called Fierce Self-Compassion, I think it's called. It came out like last June and um, a year ago, June. It's excellent. I highly recommend it to any woman who's looking to be more compassionate with herself. But that's really where it starts, where you can stop regretting everything you've done, right? To stop going back and playing it over and over. And I could have, I should have, I would have. No, you, if you could have, you would have. You couldn't at the time. This was the best you could do with what you had. You're always doing, you're always doing that. We're always trying to survive. So when I really got that, like really let myself believe that because I wasn't letting myself believe it because if I'm a piece of crap, then I can't believe this about myself, right? I can't, I can't give myself this. When I finally started to really believe that is when the self, the forgiveness started with myself and that I'm not proud of anything. It doesn't change, you know, that I feel bad, you know, about what I did. I just not overcome with shame anymore about it. I'm not overcome with guilt. I'm not overcome with remorse or regret. I have tried to make amends in whatever way I could for those actions. And I did that a long time ago. And I, I think in some ways, you know, what I give to the world with the podcast is part of that amends. You know, I, I can only live my life now. It's all I got. It's all I got. I love so, it. Yeah. It, know, that's so true. How do you, how do you think, you know, I, I think science shows us that the way we look at our past really impacts our yep. life right now. How do you, kind of in a day to day and just like in your journey in life, I'm hearing it all over the place, but I'm curious how you'll say it. When you look back at your life and you look at your life and your path forward, kind of the, the lay of the land on Google maps of, you can see where I've been and I can see where I'm going. How has that impacted you and the decisions you make and the life you've chosen to live? Mm, I mean, it's everything, right? I, I have just a very deep spiritual practice now, and I've been following many different kinds of people for years, finding my, finding my peace. Um, but I use kind of one phrase mostly over the whole thing, which is life is happening for me, not to me. And that goes for everything. And so even the struggles I've been, like, if I hadn't been an addict, I don't think I'd be sitting here right now talking to you. I, I, I don't, I'm, I was going to be a lawyer and that's what I went to school for. I, I have a bachelor's in poli sci because I was so going to be a lawyer. I mean, you know, that's all I ever wanted. I never would have chosen this. I can't imagine I would have chosen this career path. It's, you know, it's, you know, Steve Jobs has that famous commencement speech, right? With you can't connect the dots looking forward, right? Only backwards. And yes. that's it. And so everything, I don't see in, in, in my spiritual teachings, it, it's called contrast. You know, when the things happen that we don't like the unwanted and contrast is always to push us forward in some way. Again, it doesn't mean we wish it on ourselves. It doesn't mean we're happy it happened. I'm not happy. I'm an, I'm not happy about it. It's not about that. It's about embracing that. Well, but this was, and so because life is happening for me, not to me, it means that's all ultimately been for my greater good. Even if I couldn't see that, when I was in it. Now, when I look back, I really can. And I really can see how each step created the next step. And so I keep trying to do that today. Things still happen that I don't like. <laughs> you know, it happens all the time. And I, I keep going there. 
like, all right, I, I don't know why right now I'm going to, I might never know why this thing happened, but I'm going to see it through this lens. And because that's the lens that helps me grow and have joy. And again, that's my definition of success. So I've had, I, not long ago, I had someone, I was talking to a woman um, after a 12-step meeting actually. And she said to me, uh, well, you're, aren't, isn't that just denial? And I said, you can call it whatever you want. I'm happy and you're not. I, I don't know what to say. Like, <laughs> you can, I don't know. I don't think I'm in denial. I actually think you're in denial of this life that you could have. You know, I, I said, that's how I see it. But it, to me, I look at you and I look at me and I don't want to think like you, you know, I was very blunt with her because she was very blunt. It was a nice conversation. We were, we were cool. Sure. We were arguing, but, um, and she started laughing. She's like, oh, I never thought I was in denial. And I said, you know, what does that even mean? Like, what does that really even mean? Are, are we, I think people, we hear all the time, you know, no pain, no gain. The struggle is real. You know, everything is supposed to be a struggle. And I don't operate that way. I just don't. I don't, it's funny, you know, recently I was talking to one of my old business coaches. I went to like a VIP day and she had this woman there who was doing, um, she's huge on social media, big, an influencer, you know, like getting paid millions to go do influency things. Right. So, and she was teaching us about social media and I'm not a social media fan. It's just not my thing. You know, I'm maybe too old. I was kind of past it. I don't know. I spend zero time on there. Like my assistant does stuff. It's my words always in my, you know, we have to have it. Everybody has to have it, but I don't spend time on social media. It's just not how I do it. And I'm hugely successful. The podcast is hugely successful. I make lots of money. Like I'm hugely successful. I, and everyone says it's a necessary evil. And I'm like, not to me. I don't do things that don't feel good. I just don't, I don't anymore. I used to, and I don't. So if it doesn't feel good, then why would I keep doing it? And this doesn't feel good. And I trust the universe that I do like, I do a reel every week. You know, I do like one thing. And again, I pay someone to take all my information and make it into carousels and post stuff. And she does, I mean, it's me, it's all my words. It's all my stuff. I'm just not physically on there talking to people and doing something. So she does all that. So that's fine. I don't mind paying her for that. That's cool. And because I'd rather spend the time with a client who I enjoy I love that work and make, I can make the money and go pay her. Right. So that's cool. Like I, it's just how you want to do it. I just, you know, but we hear things. It's like, Oh, I have to do that. It's like this FOMO, you know, <laughs> I have to do that. I have to do that. And I've gotten to a point where I don't, I just really don't. I'm like, I don't have to do anything. I, I, I can just do things I enjoy and that, and that bring me joy, that bring me growth. And if I'm really, one of the things I do a lot is I'll sit with an idea. I always do this actually. So if, so if an idea comes in for something for me to do, like I get offered something or whatever, I, that happens all the time, right? I just sit with it for a second and I notice where my energy goes. Do I feel energized or do I feel enervated? And if I feel enervated, I don't do the thing. End of. End of. Done. Even if I've started I like something, that. I felt energized, <laughs> but then as it went on, I was like, oh, I hate this. As soon as I feel, and I just check in, I'm like, what is that? What is that? What's going on? And, and I've been, I think, right every time, you know, my book energized me to number Amazon, number one bestseller, you know, it energized me to think of doing a Ted talk. I went and did it, very, you know, great. Like I, with things energized, the clients I work with, I'm energized by them. I'm not enervated by them. You know, sometimes people call and it's like, no, we're not a good fit. I can tell, I'm like, I'm not your person. 
You know what I mean? Where I am and where you are, you're not going to enjoy me. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to refer you out, you know? And I only, yeah, I just only work with people I really want to work with. And so that means when I'm doing those sessions, I have so much energy and excitement about it. Like I think about my client, you know, I, and I like that. I, I don't feel, I care. I don't worry. I care about my clients, but I don't worry about my clients. And I think that's a good distinction too. So when I'm working on something again, like, where's my energy? Am I getting to worry? Am I into anxiety? It's like, that's not good for me. Like, no, no, thanks. I pass. I've passed on a lot of stuff too, that later people are, are you crazy? It's like, I don't feel crazy. I feel happy. Yeah. So, I, I love that you practice what you preach. Cause I know in your book, one of the, the key tips, your book is very practical based in yep. terms of actual things you can do their yep. concepts. It's rooted in science, but it's also, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, it's, it's really based in things you can do on a practical level. One of the things is to hire help. One of the things uh -huh. is to quit doing things like stop doing two or three things, I think was yep. the action step. Yep. When let's talk about moms, <laughs> talk about moms quitting things and hiring help. And, you know, we've been taught, I was taught from a young age, I remember ironing my dad's shirts. My brothers were not taught to iron my dad's shirts. Oh, wow. Um, and that's okay. Uh, I don't even own an iron now. Every time my mom comes to do something, I don't either. my mom's like, you don't own an iron. So I bought you another iron. I feel like I do this every time you move. And I'm like, yes, you do. Um, but <laughs> how do we, how do we quit? And how do we not just quit doing that thing, but pay someone else to do it. You know, for me, that's the height of really thinking about joy and growth. Again, my definition of success. So this, so here I am, if I'm with my children all day, right. And, or I'm with them and I'm miserable or I can't pay attention to my children because I'm cleaning and cooking and doing and whatever, because we only have so much emotional bandwidth. So I would much rather be with my kids and be fully present for an hour than be with them for six hours. And on my phone, I see parents all the time. I see stay at home moms all the time at the park or something if I'm out and they're on their phones, their kid is off playing and they're on their phone. They're not even interacting with their kid. Then there's plenty that do, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I get why you're exhausted. You have to interact with them all day, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours. It's exhausting. And so you need that time away. So I'm just saying, well, then, you know, think about to me, the time away is maybe me working. So I have money to pay someone to do the other things. So when I'm with my kids, I can really be with my kids fully because no, I don't, even if I was a stay-at-home mom, I wouldn't be with my kids 24, like I'd be doing, I'd be on my phone too. I'd be doing other things too. I'd be doing the laundry. I'd be doing, so this idea that if we're stay-at-home or whatever, or we don't hire people that we're, that we're giving this all to our kids or to our family, it's not true. <laughs> so everyone only has so much bandwidth. So why wouldn't I hire some people or why wouldn't I, you know, I talk a lot about what are you going to, take off your plate, you know, what have you decided has to happen that you doesn't have to happen. That's my control craziness. Right. And what can I, what resources can I add? Cause the big problem in marriages is that we are always looking to our partner to pick up the slack, right. You know, pull their weight, do, you know, 
it, so if we can't do it, we think, well, you need to do it. You know, we're looking at this other person like you need to do it. And that's a big problem because they're exhausted too, or they're not going to do it the way we like it or whatever. So when you hire somebody, you and your partner have a lot more energy. Maybe you will have that. How am I supposed to have rock star sex if I'm freaking exhausted from whatever all day? Like, forget it. Something's going to go. So would you rather have a blowjob or hire a cleaning lady? Like these are, these are questions to ask. You know what I mean? Because I feel like that's going to be an easy answer for that. Uh, yes. <laughs> hire the cleaning lady. Uh-huh. So I have a question around that though, because my husband and I, this has been a theme that's come up several times in the past couple of weeks for me. So I'm trying to take that in as like, Hey, this is presented itself. Do something with the information. And so, you know, something that I just, hate with a passion is laundry. My mom hated laundry. I hate laundry. My laundry room looks like a freaking bomb just went off in it. And so I'm talking to my husband. I'm like, let's just outsource it. Let's send it out. Let's go do that. And then I pull back and I think if I do that, how are my kids going to know how to do laundry? (laughs) Like, am seriously? I going to raise entitled kids? Yes. That is seriously what went through my head. Oh, I love you and so then, much. Yeah. Isn't this crazy? Because Look I know I can't be went. the only one thinking. All from no laundry. Right? Yes. Like I'm not it's a good mom count. because I'm not teaching my kids how to do laundry. Well, by the way. Hold, hold on. What what you are teaching your kids, because I've seen your laundry room, is to have a really crazy laundry room. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's so bad. It's like it's never changed. hate it though. too. That's true. Well, and again, how old are your kids? Uh, 14, 11, and 8. Okay. Oh yeah. So for, yeah, they know how to do laundry. I don't know what to say. They know how to do laundry. My kids know know. how to do laundry and they occasionally have to do it anyway. If they have a uniform that has to get clean for the next day or something, right. I'm like, go do a load of laundry, right. Put it on small, you know, don't do a full load, you know, blah, blah, blah. But otherwise it's so wonderful. And by the way, if you have a cleaning person, my cleaning person does laundry. Like I just said, to her can you do the laundry and she was like sure I'm like great you know it wasn't even hard she didn't even like fight back she was like oh okay <laughs> I did great and I actually ended up paying five her bucks alone <laughs> I know I ended up so what even if she had yeah. right I I have this famous thing where you know nobody was cleaning up the dog poop you know the dog poop in the backyard and the kids are supposed to do it they should do it right they should they should but nobody was doing it. I was becoming the the nag and the thing. I come home and I'd step in dog poop or it would be on one of their shoes and in my house. And I I just, the smell, I I can't have the dog poop. So I finally hired little Mario, my, my neighbor from three doors down to come clean up dog poop a few times a week. And I'm just, it's like, yeah, I, I say a lot. Do you want to be correct or effective? I could be right all day that I should do the laundry or I should, you know, we should be, my kids should clean up the dog poop, but it's not effective. It's not, I'm miserable. So you got to get out of that head. And yeah, my kids are not entitled just because they didn't clean up dog poop as much. They still had to occasionally, right? You know, it's like go out there, but I was nagging them once a week instead of 10 times a week. And so that is, feels so much better. And again, when I'm asking them to do other things and when we're having more interactions about other stuff, we we're closer. We have a bit like Mike, I have teenagers and we have great relationships. They do with each other. I do with them. We are close. We talk a lot. They're wonderful people I've raised, 
my my son who's graduate he's not going to harvard i'll tell you that right now he doesn't have like he's not it was touch and go for 18 years in school i'll tell you that right now uh i'm like it's a miracle he graduated but he did and you know he's gonna go to community college and that's great he's gotta leave the house but so he's not i guess some people would say well you failed as a parent he's not going off to an ivy league school like you did he's not whatever and i feel very successful as a parent i'm like "Mm -mm, mike i have a kind loving wonderful son who is nice to, I've seen him with like, he doesn't know I'm watching and I've watched him open the doors for people. Like he's aware of his environment. He talks to people and makes eye contact. I, I got a winner there. And so it's really about what your definition is. But I think as mothers, going back to what Hillary was saying, yeah, we carry all this stuff about what we should do or supposed to do. And that is where the self-awareness comes in of and the self-love and the compassion of, well, but you know what? Women didn't used to work 50 hours a week either, or be the primary breadwinners or, you know, whatever all the other things we're doing. Right. But we're just supposed to keep adding <laughs> and that's what doesn't work. It Nobody can, you do know, it. I really like where, where I don't want to say a movement, but just the reality of we can't do it all. And it's okay to not do it all. I think a lot of people pride themselves on, I work, I'm, I'm this, I'm that I'm PTO president. I'm, you know, coaching, I'm doing all these things. You know what? I think it's really lovely to see that that's not reality. I love it. For women to share that that's not reality. It's not. Oh, first, no, here's two things. One, Oprah doesn't have it all. Oprah. Oprah Winfrey, one of the richest women in the world, does not have it all. Never had kids, didn't actually get married, seems to still struggle with her weight. Love her. She seems very happy. God bless you, Oprah. Right? That's number one. But number two is to be very clear that when we're successful, I just wrote this in, I have a weekly love letter that goes out to my email list and I just write about life. And I just wrote about this, how when I'm failing, when I'm succeeding here, I'm failing somewhere else. And it's called opportunity cost. And you learn about it in business school that every time you do something, it's costing you somewhere else. It's not a question if it is. It's not a, oh, in some situations, it's all situations. So as I'm sitting here talking to you now, right, I'm not having downtime. I'm not, I don't know, home with my kids. I'm not doing other work. I'm not seeing a client, I'm right? I'm, I'm failing somewhere else. Maybe that word is strong, but you get my point. And, but I'm fully present here and very happy to be here. And that's all that is. And I can't sit there and bemoan all the things I can't do, but I understand that I'm not doing other things. So even that person who's the president of the PTA and doing, they're failing somewhere when they're being a president of the PTA, right? Are they having great sex with their husband every night? I don't know. Or their wife or whoever they have at home. You know, like, I don't know. I, I, I know it's not, I know they can't be. Well, and have all of that going on. It just doesn't work that way. Nobody does. Nobody does. So, or maybe they're sacrificing themselves, like any downtime or any time because they feel they're driven by guilt or fear, right? Which is what that is. I say a lot this, I think I've said it to Hillary before. I always want you to take inspiration. I want you to take action from inspiration, not negative motivation. So you want to take action, not because I feel guilty or shit, that's all negative motivation <laughs> or because yeah. I should, or, be, you know, because I'm worried or I'm anxious that I'm worried that I'm afraid that, right? No, no, no. Like, like you're just saying, this is a perfect one, right? With the laundry, <laughs> 
you don't want to take action. Let me have it happen. No, it's great. It. I love it. It's such a good example. So the the, ins, the 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 impetus to take the action is from a negative thing. My children will be entitled. I'm scared about the future. I'm worried what will happen to them. Or maybe it's about money, or, right? It's not from a positive thing. So that's how you know to not take that action. But when you think about the other side, right? it's like, oh, but we'll all have more free time. I won't be complaining about this thing anymore. I won't walk in there and have the soul sucked out of me, which affects my family every time I walk by the fucking laundry room, right? Uh, my kids will learn so many other things in this life that are so important from me about how to take care of themselves, about how to be critical thinkers, about how to see what's important and what's not in their daily lives, how to prioritize. That's what they're learning from me. If I have somebody do the laundry and Chris is going to get more blowjobs, <laughs> which I know he'll be very happy about. <laughs> yeah. He's like, who's Abby? <laughs> We're hiring her. Oh my God. I love this woman. Yeah. No, I think what Hillary, you said something earlier that was, it, it kind of just like flipped a switch that was like, no, you're teaching your kids to hate laundry just as much as you. And I was like, Bleh. I sure am. So yeah. guess I'm going to look at a laundry service <laughs> later. Yeah. Just get a cleaning Start person. That shit Abby's on to Would you just get your cleaning person? Just How get do you a cleaning, cleaning person. person. Listen, she couldn't catch up on the laundry at this point. Like I'm going to have to send it out. Uh, like, no, you're not. You ask her to give come it in to Goodwill. Yeah. It'll be cheaper than sending it out. Trust me. And you have to then go and bring it and bring it back unless someone will come and pick it up and do it. No, it's not worth your time. You ask your person, can you come one extra day on a Saturday, please? You tell me when, can you catch up on all the laundry? I don't care if you read in between. I don't care if you put your feet up and watch TV. Can you just do it all? And I'll, and I'll pay you for the day. Done. End of story. Done. And then for now on, I'm going to pay an extra 20 bucks when you come to also do the laundry. And you're done. And the way that I've loved reframing, hiring, people to help me with those types of things is I am giving them a job and yeah. they, it will impact their family and then mm -hmm. their family. Like I remember being a kid and in our little tiny town going over and weeding flower beds and my hands, probably when I was four, I guess I had to be five years old, six years old. And my hands would be all like, you know, we didn't, we yeah. weren't using gloves and you're pulling up no, this, there's like, no gloves, right? this rough grass and you're weeding these flower beds um, for this family, they had so many children and the irony is I think they only had three kids and I have four. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, man, they have a lot of kids and washing those baby bottles and, and then mowing the, mowing the yard. There was an A&W in Wellington and we would mow that yard and mom and I would go, um, clean houses and they were usually new builds. And so you would take a razor blade and scratch off all the stickers on all the windows in the house. And, this was the way that we would make ends meet. And so if people weren't hiring help, I was the help. We wouldn't have had the life that we were fortunate to have. And it was even wow. a, a pretty low income life, but I can't imagine if people don't be stingy uh, in my, in my view, I don't want to be stingy with those types of things. I don't enjoy. I want to offload. I don't want to do them. Um, and my kids will figure it out whether I, I think whether I, um, model it for them or not. Um, it is for me, it is a way to really cherish that. I remember being the cleaning 
kid. And now I'm so fortunate that I get to bless somebody else with this exact same job. And I hope someday she is doing the same thing in her home so that someone else like this, this is a ripple effect that continues. It's a great piece. Love it. So are you getting a cleaning? Get, you're hiring. See, she's going to add a cleaning lady. I can see yeah, that. Uh, like my kids can, <laughs> my kids can look up how to do laundry on YouTube, just like they look up everything else. So just like yeah. everything yeah. else, Cammy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Chris is going to look up how to get a blow job from my wife, unless maybe she's looking up Abby's podcast. She, he, might learn, he might learn it there. Um, Abby, I think, you know, one of the, one of the core things I just love, and I have texted with you about this, but I am sort of low key obsessed with it is the, would you rather be right? Or would you rather be effective? Yeah. I don't know where this came from for you, but it is so true in every area of our life, even in giving compassion to ourselves, because I can mm-hmm. be the judge and the jury and I can be right about all the things. And, you know, I remember doing really unkind things when I was early on in college, just so selfish. And I can go back there and I can be right by being the judge, mm-hmm. but it is not effective in, in any form of living. Yeah. So it's also really helped transform conversations I have with coworkers and employees, what are ways that friends can use this? Like Kami and I, what are ways that Kami and I can use? This is an easy one for us to model. And my hope for this podcast is that our friendship just like, you know, blossoms from like one rose on a bush to this, like this thing that is a monstrosity of fun. Um, what are ways that friends can make sure that when they're having a conversation, they're being effective instead of right? Oh, well, I think there's many, I think one thing is when we're, when we really, when we're very, it's always about how you feel. The rightness usually feels in the fear side of our brain. Cause the only reason we want to be right is because we're trying to control because we're uh, if it's right, then I know, and then I can control it, and then I'm clear about it, and then I feel okay. And so if our safety comes from that, that's the problem. So it's always fear generated. And so generally, you can tell from that. So if you're talking to each other, and you're, well, this happened a little bit with Cammy, right? You know, it's like, um, well, then she's gonna have to be here all, no, I, we have to send out, we have to do that. You know, it becomes something that sounds a little fearful from a very smart, together, gorgeous woman. You're like, really? Did you really not? But that's what happens. Our fear brain takes over and we don't actually problem solve well because those two parts of the brain can't work together. So it's really stopping right there. And you know, you stop your friend when you notice the fear-based response, when you notice the energy getting into that space, you can, uh, my, my, I call her my wife, my Cammy, my, 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 my wife, my best friend, she'll say, um, take a breath and think again about that. You know, just take, take a breath and think again about that. And right with me, you know, not like see you later, but like right there. And I'll, and just doing that will help me. It's like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Help me sort of realign. And I'll notice that I've been, you know, fearful and anxious and all that stuff is coming up. And that's where I know I'm coming from the side of my brain I don't want to come from. And so I think that's one of the first things is to sort of help each other notice when the talk is fear-based 
in whatever way that is. That's because that's correct talk in some way. And then to stop. And I like how you said that so much, Hillary, like, yeah, you could be right all day. I could be right all day that I was, it was horrible of me to sell drugs in a rehab, but it's not effective now. What's effective about it? Am I helping those people? No. Am I feeling energized to help others? No. Am I right? There's nothing effective in my world from sitting in that. So how can I be effective around that? Oh, I can try to make amends again. That's at least a positive, right, thing in the forefront. I, I don't know. You know, I can, like, what can I do? Now? I can remind myself that I was doing the best with the tools I had at the time. I can, right? There's a lot of ways to then be effective in there. But I, I generally go with the feeling. I think that's the quickest, easiest way is when we notice with our, especially with our girlfriends, you know, we notice when they're feeling agitated or fear-based and we, we don't always key in. So it's really nice to key in and go, Hey, how you, what are you feeling right now? And even to stop and do that, what are you feeling right now? Like right this minute, what are you feeling? And to have them really check it out, you know, to have them stop for a minute um, and try to go a little deeper. And whenever the feeling, by the way, is, you know, if they say, well, nothing, I'm just, you know, that's usually what happens. People <laughs> say, well, I'm not feeling anything. I just need this done. It's like, well, we're always feeling something and that's a thought. I just need this done. What are you feeling about needing to do this thing? Right. And helping people separate out what's a thought versus a feeling is another, to me, very effective um, way of dealing with that. I love it. Tips and tools. Abby, it's been such a wonderful time visiting with you and getting to know you better in, in a setting where you get to talk more than I get to talk, which is usually the role <laughs> reversal when we're in therapy together. Um, thank you so much. I love your heart. I hope that, I hope that you and everything that you're doing and, you know, you're creating peace in my family, um, oh, more peace than there was before you got a hold of us or before we got a hold of you. And I know that's true with your podcast. We've shared the podcast with our team and relationships really are creating world peace. And it is a global movement that you've got going, even just with us, we've got folks in lots of countries who are listening to you and learning from you. And there is a passion inside you that is so touching that I, I think from my pers my perspective that I am so grateful to the I think you said precocious nine-year-old. Is that how you described it? I'm so grateful to her today because yeah. of the woman who's in front of me right now. Oh, thank you so much. I'm going to cry. Thank you. It's beautiful. Oh. Thank you. And I love being here. I love being with women just, and especially women who love each other. It's such a great thing when we uplift each other. It's yes. Good. Okay. It's we'll put lots of stuff in the show notes so that people can find you and, enjoy your podcast and your book and hopefully improve their relationships because everything is a journey. Thanks so much, Abby. Thank you. Thanks, Abby. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for listening in to another episode of The Grateful Leader. This is such a fun passion project for Kami and me to launch and spend time developing and nurturing because we really believe that if we can share the, the, the gift of gratitude, if you can inject that into your life, that it will make your life better and everyone within your reach, within your sphere and your orbit, it will make their lives better because you will be vibrating on a higher frequency. 
or if you want to call it a different way, you're just going to be a brighter light. It's going to help shed light on other people. However it is that you want to think about it, I hope that gratitude is something that can become part of your worldview, where when you look back on the hard things, you can look back at them and say, this was something that was here to, for my greater good. This was a lesson, a muscle that I had to strengthen so that I could be a more well-rounded leader within my life now and in my life in the future. Maybe I don't understand what it is right now, but I'm going to see it in the future. And I know that life is rigged in my favor. And with that, we hope you have a great day. The greatest gift that you can give us, if this was of any value to you, is for you to shoot a text to a friend with a link to this episode saying, hey, I think that you might get some good out of this. Thank you so much and hope you have a great day and we will see you back here for another episode of The Grateful Leader with Kami and Hillary.